I had held so much in for so long that my body began to fall apart. I saw doctors all over America. No one could help me. And I began to read some folks were talking about the mind-body connection and the ways that psychological traumas and stress could manifest physically. And I became very serious about seeking out ways to confront that head on because I was out of options. There's nothing efficient about healing. Let me repeat that. There is nothing efficient about healing, at least how we define and experience efficiency, right? Yet if we do not address the burdens we carry, they end up impacting how we lead for the negative and then drain our physical, our emotional, our relational well-being taking us out and keeping us from the work that is so meaningful. Now, leaders often struggle to make the time for the work of healing until their body sends out an SOS. Whether you're a creative, an entrepreneur, a politician, a business owner, a parent, a human, (laughs) you know what it's like to push through something until you just can't anymore. Leaders like you tend to burn out when you do not make the time to do the important work of tending to the parts of you that need deeper healing. The irony is that doing this deeper work is often more efficient than avoiding it or doing what feels efficient but really is a band-aid that simply doesn't stick. When you get that SOS from your body, everything stops. Now body SOSs differ from person to person but can show up as insomnia, chronic pain that is hard to treat, illness after illness after illness, hair and skin issues, digestive distress, appetite and mood swings, just to name a few of the common ones I see. But usually at the heart of a body SOS is the burden of unaddressed trauma of some sort. The cost of avoiding or bypassing the deep work and healing is costing you time, opportunity, and your physical and emotional well-being. In an age where quick fixes and hacks, I see many leaders struggling trying to take what makes them so successful in their work and turn that towards their healing process, often unsuccessfully because the healing process is rarely, again, efficient. (laughs) And this truth often does not feel logical, especially when we're rumbling with recurring struggles. We need more leaders showing up and modeling what it means to redefine the efficiency of healing by doing the deeper work to change. That's why I'm excited to share this conversation with Jonathan Merritt. Jonathan knows a thing or two about the deep work of the healing process because he's lived this truth in action. And I'm so excited to brag here on Jonathan. He's one of America's most prolific writers focused on religion, culture, and politics. And oh gosh, how I love the intersection of those three topics. He serves as a contributing writer for The Atlantic, a contributing editor for The Week, and is author of several critically acclaimed books. Jonathan's published more than 3,500 articles, all in well-known outlets, is a commentator on national TV and radio stations, and regularly has worked on more than 50 additional books as a ghostwriter, with several of those titles landing on bestseller lists. Additionally, he trains hundreds of young writers through his Write Brilliant course and represents a select number of clients as a literary agent. Jonathan is definitely not bored. (laughs) 
I've been following Jonathan's work for several years and have developed a deep respect and appreciation, not only for his courage in writing about the hard and controversial things around culture and faith, but also his vulnerability about his own journey healing from trauma, depression, chronic pain, and following the call to risk failure over regret when he made big life decisions. I know many of you will relate to aspects of Jonathan's journey the tenacity and commitment he has towards the long game work of healing and how this process transformed how he's now showing up in his work. Pay special attention to his rumbles with how he languages and communicates his face down moments in relationship to his body and his own journey with languaging his faith. Thank you so much, Jonathan Merritt, for joining me today. It is a pure honor. Oh, it is my pleasure. I'm happy to be with you. So I'd like to just go back in time, drop in, and I want you to go back and take us back with you when you made the decision to move to New York City, leave the life, the work, the community that had informed your whole worldview, and tell us a little bit about why you moved to New York and what you were maybe moving towards and also what you were running away from. Mm-hmm. You know, I probably felt what a lot of people listening to this uh, have felt at various points in their life, which is um, a loss of connection to where they are and to what they've known without a full vision for what's next. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I had felt that for a while. I had felt this sort of, this sort of um, holy discontent that the, the place where I had been living and working the majority of my life outside of Atlanta, Georgia, was no longer the place I was meant to be, to stay. And I didn't know what was next. I, I looked at, um, actually, at, at, at some houses uh, in Atlanta. And, uh, you know, I kind of thought, well, I guess I'll just move to down in the city to a different, uh, a different part of town. But I was in New York, and I remember I was at a um, a press junket for a film called Twelve Years a Slave, which is oh. a, a powerful movie. Uh, I was down just across from uh, now where the 9/11 memorial is, staying at a, a hotel there. And a friend of mine and a client uh, lived nearby, and so I asked her to come and to have lunch with me. And I said, "Look, you you moved here from the south, and I'm just curious because you have." children, uh, one of which has a special need. Like, why did you do this? Why did you pick up everything and move here? And she said, you know, every so often in life, there comes a whisper. Mm. And it's a totally legitimate life decision to say no to that whisper. But if you do, it will go away and it never comes back again. And I remembered at that point a whisper from when I was 12 years old, the first time I visited New York City, and I looked at my dad and I said, I'm going to live here one day. And that, wow. that whisper had sort of faded away, but it was kind of there, you know, under, under the kind of cool gray ash on top of those embers. Mm-hmm. And I got in touch with it again in that moment. And, you know, her words became sand in my shoe on the flight home. And I began to think about two possible futures, one in which I moved to New York and one in which I did not. And I thought, you know, worst case scenario, if I move to New York, 
I could encounter failure. Mm-hmm. I can go. It doesn't work. I can't afford it. I have to move home. Worst case scenario, if I don't go, I could encounter regret. And when I weighed those options, I thought I would rather live with failure than with regret. And I hit the ground and a month and a half later, I found a renter for my house. I sold everything that I owned and I packed what was left and moved to a a neighborhood I'd never heard of to live with two complete strangers. And thought I'd be there for eight uh, eight months, but now it's been seven years later, <laughs> and I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> I love that failure versus regret. That's a powerful statement. Mm-hmm. You talk and write about when you moved to New York City that you kind of you had compartmentalized your life, particularly your faith, and mm-hmm. that was a, your way of connecting. And you mm-hmm. said it wasn't integrated reality. I loved hearing you use those words. Um, And so you left the compartments of your life in this move, honoring the whisper, right? Choosing Mm -hmm. the potential of failure over regret. But so you moved to to New York City, which has very four distinct seasons, very different than the South. I'm from Minnesota, so I know these seasons well. I've lived in New York. (laughs) So it's very different. What burdens showed up for you as you kind of got over the, you know, movers high, the excitement, the I did this, I'm here. And as the season settled in, what are some of the burdens in your life and your story that showed up for you? Well, you know, you have the, you have kind of these, um, these immediate burdens, right? Mm -hmm. The cost of living exploded. Uh, Meanwhile, my um, income did not. So, wow. you know, I I went from owning a home, a large home with five bedrooms to living with two roommates and having a tiny little shoebox room where I live and paying more <laughs> in rent than I paid in mortgage for my entire home. Yeah. Uh, I knew nobody, really. So I was having to make friends. And that's super hard. You know, I felt like I had gone from being a grown up 30 year old man to being like a like a recent college graduate or something like all of the problems that I thought I had kind of moved past reemerged in my life. But then there were these these like low grade um, shocks to the system. And one is just was just felt in the in the difference in culture. And I'd come from a very religious culture, uh, a very, um, a culture where you can, you, you can talk openly about, in fact, you're sort of expected to talk openly about spirituality and faith to a, a, a place that isn't quite like that. It's not that New York is secular. That's not it exactly. But they are sort of um, inoculated against the kind of glib spirituality that's more culturally expressed in the deep south and so if you're going to say um uh thank god that happened you may want to know exactly what you mean by that because you may be asked like people will want to know whether that's just some cliche that you're tossing out or or whether you have a grasp on what that means. And so I found myself using all this language that I had been using my entire life, but now being asked to 
explain what it meant. It wasn't that people said, ah, you can't talk about it. You know, there's this sort of misconception that New Yorkers are kind of anti-religious, and that simply is not true. Um, but they, they, um, they do often want to know exactly what you mean and whether they should take you seriously. And so suddenly I was being asked to, to define what I meant when I used the word free. What I meant when I used um, the word salvation or saved. And uh, I found that as I tried to explain what I, what I meant, not only did they not really get what I was saying, I didn't get what I was mm. saying. Um, you know, it, it was, I say in my book, it, it's like trying to define the word color or the. You know, if you're listening to this, ask yourself, what is your definition of color? What's your mm-hmm. definition of the? These are words that we use all the time, right? We have a kind of, of, of working knowledge down in our gut. Um, but what do they mean? What do they really mean? Or, or as I often ask, what am I saying when I'm saying what I'm saying? And so when I began to sort of ask myself that question, what am I really saying when I, I'm saying what I'm saying? I found that I didn't know. And, and when I did know, I didn't feel all that comfortable with what I had come to believe. And so it, it left me um, struck silent, not really sure how uh, this spiritual part of me would be integrated into my new world. I think that's powerful that you're saying you were saying things that when you were asked back, what do you mean? You found yourself not even having the answer. That can be, that can kind of upend us a little bit, right? It kind of shakes up our our worldview. It shapes up our even our safety and our anchors. Tell me a little bit more about this journey of discovery of what do I really mean, and then do I really mean that <laughs> after mm-hmm. you discover that? Yeah, you know, I think anytime that you that you you have your life upended in this way, you have a choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a choice to do the work or to avoid the work, right? In other words, what I, what I could do is say, okay, this is hard. Um, you know, I, I'm just going to let all this go and I'm going to just learn how to live life differently. Or I, I, can, I can recognize that that tension is actually an invitation. It's an invitation to do some hard work, to wrestle with what it means to integrate this faith into a new context. And um, I was not ready to let go of my faith, or at least the vocabulary that came along with it. And, you know, there are some people who do. They say, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I don't go to church, and I don't talk about faith, and I don't have any spiritual practices, but I still believe. Right? In other words, they've taken kind of this, like, cognitive connection to something and they put it in this like hermetically sealed envelope and it's gone in their drawer and so they still have possession <laughs> of it but it's not something that that's making a difference in their life they're not taking it out every day opening it up showing it to people interacting with it, it it's there but it's not making a difference and i recognized early on that was my choice and i said i, I want to figure out what it means to speak God from scratch, to start over as if I was just encountering the vocabulary of faith for the first time. 
and to allow those individuals chance conversations with strangers, new friends, to become conversation partners and to lead me forward into this new way of being and new way of believing. And, and that was sort of the beginning then of, of what was a multi-year journey that, that the book really tries to kind of lay out for folks. You talk about, I mean, this, this, the way that you describe that of kind of more compartmentalizing or integrating this, this journey, right? And I love what you just said, you can do the work or avoid the work. What was that work for you as specifically as possible? What did that look like? Well, first I had to understand the problem, right? You, mm. And this is true in leadership generally. So many mm-hmm. people don't take the time to understand the problem. They immediately, they and, and, and they do it honestly, because a, a lot of leaders, and in particular, I am one too, we're fixers. So <laughs> we want totally. to skip, you know, give me just enough information to give me an elementary school level knowledge of the problem so that I can move to the solution because the solution is where I shine. What we fail to forget is, is that the effectiveness of the solution is dependent upon our understanding of the problem. And so uh, I, I had to say, okay, what, what is the issue here? And I realized there were a number of issues. One, there were all kinds of things that, um, that I didn't know. And we talked about this uh, just a moment ago, there were words that I'd never stopped to ask myself, what do I really believe they mean? There were other words that I kind of knew what they meant, but they made me cringe. They stuck in my throat. You know, they were dirty words, a word like sin, where I thought, yeah, I know what that means, but I don't want to be asked to explain <laughs> what that means. So I began to kind of realize that there were all of these uh, barriers that were kind of packed around me. And then I began to realize that it wasn't just a personal problem, but it was a cultural crisis. Uh, I began to, to, to sort of um, have conversations with others and say, do you ever feel like this? Do you ever feel like that? I wasn't rushing to try to find the solution. I was asking questions. Um, so many of the sentences that I was using when I was having spiritual conversations ended in a question mark and not a period. And I began to to hear people say, yeah, I felt that way. I feel that way. When I go to work, I feel that way. When I have a conversation on a subway platform or a street corner or in a coffee shop, yes, I feel that way. When I talk to my friends about faith or when they ask a question about what I believe, yes, I feel that way. And I conducted a nationwide survey of over a, a thousand Americans through Omnipole and the Barna Group. And we began to see that actually most Americans, the vast majority of us, two thirds of us feel this way. And so when I realized that that was a problem and that there were many reasons for that problem, um, even reasons I hadn't identified, when I began to ask people who weren't having spiritual conversations, why not? Why don't you uh, talk about faith or religion or spirituality or God more often? They began to say back to me things that I recognized. They were telling me reasons that I hadn't even excavated. When they would say, I'm embarrassed by the way that these words have been used in popular culture. I said, oh yeah, me too. Because when people would ask me about my family, uh, I had to say my dad's a televangelist, right? My dad's a, pa- a megachurch pastor. And there were all these ideas that were associated with that, right? And I felt embarrassed by those, even though he's 
not that kind of televangelist. He's one of the good guys. I still felt embarrassed. And so I would navigate around it rather than sitting in the uncomfortability of the conversation. And so for me, it was really diving deep into um, what is going on and why is it happening? That is what led me to ask, should we do anything about it? Or even before that, can anything be done? I think that's powerful. And, and I really respect your intentional pivot to curiosity versus fixing. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, no surprise that you're a journalist and, and, and you're, you dug deep into your curiosity about yourself and others. And you cultivated this common humanity that I sense was a little bit of salve for your own, <laughs> your own journey as things were upended to saying, it's not just me. Um, mm-hmm. We're in this, we're in this together. But you're using the word embarrassed, and I'm wondering, because I want to go back to a quote um, that stood out to me in Learning to Speak God from Scratch, where you were talking about this process, and more than embarrassed, you said you were drenched in shame about your faith, and I'd love for you to tell me more, even the anatomy of that specific shame storm. I mean, you did the intellectual level, you, you commissioned a study, you got curious, but for you personally, can you talk about that more? Yeah, so so words um, don't just have a meaning. They have a feel, mm-hmm. right? And, um, you know, we are, we're in the middle right now. We're recording this in the middle of a pandemic, right? If you would, if you would use that word in somebody's presence six months ago, the feel of that word would be different than if you use that word in the presence of somebody whose mother, elderly mother right now is on a ventilator in an ICU use. It, the meaning hasn't changed. The yep. feel has changed because the context has changed. Yep. What I began to realize was is that there was a kind of toxicity to some of these words, that, that the silliness of faith had been exposed in, in, um, or of certain types of faith or expressions of faith had been exposed in television, documentaries, uh, movies, music, articles online. And it kind of, um, there was a stickiness to that uh, ridiculousness, um, that there was, um, there was a, a pain that had been induced among a lot of folks. Uh, by by individuals, pastors or parents or friends who had used religious words as bludgeons or weapons. And when they had weaponized sacred speech, um, that pain, that, 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 that harm had kind of stuck to those words and it had changed the way that those words had felt. And then when I began to realize that, I began to feel ashamed when I would use those words because all of that stuff sort of stuck to me as well, right? Mm. Um, There are people out there, you know, we talked about the word sin a moment ago. Um, If you know, for example, you have a friend who's um, LGBTQ and they were, they were, they, that word was used in a particular context growing up that deeply hurt them. If you even use that word, you almost, feel that hurt, right? You feel ashamed to even say that word out loud. You may not mean that word. The meaning of that word may not be shameful. You may not mean what that other person meant. 
you may, may not be using that word the way they use that word, but the feeling that is kind of stuck to that word still floods in. And so I, I kind of realized that if I were going to speak God, that was going to be a hurdle for me. I was going to have to confront why I felt ashamed of these words. Now, in other cases, I began to realize that I had misused those words, that, that I felt ashamed by using trite words by saying, oh, yeah, you know, when God closes the door, God opens the window. Oh, and, you know, which, is, which sounds um, kind of cute until you meet someone who has opened a door to a door to a door to a door to a closed door. And then you feel sort of ridiculous. You feel sort of embarrassed. And you have to confront that sense of, of shame because what you, what, what you can do, and this is where, where shame, I think, can be so um, debilitating. The conclusion is not the way I've used those words um, is ridiculous or shameful or the way that someone else has used those words is ridiculous or shameful. But because that is, the, that is something that's integrated into your life, you go, I'm ridiculous because I believe these things, because I'm even asking these questions, because I care about these words. I'm, I'm, I'm the one who should be ashamed because I'm tangled up in this whole faith thing as well. And so you become kind of implicated in it. And I was having to do a lot of deep inner work to figure out uh, whether it was even possible to, to untangle that. And if so, how? Tell me more about that deep inner work. You know, I did, I did a lot of work with a counselor in um, New York who had originally, she had worked at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Tim Keller's church, which is a very conservative church. And then she was sort of on her own uh, when I met her. And together, we began to kind of figure out what I felt about um, what I believed. And I began to sort of realize that um, I, had, I had a kind of um, repressed anger, I think, around the way that I was raised. Uh, maybe even a little bit of sadness that I had believed certain things that I now saw to be so harmful or destructive. And I had to make peace with those things. And I also had to say that that was a kind of faith, um, but it's not the kind of faith that I have now. And that I didn't have to say, well, it's either that way of being Christian or no way. I could actually make amends as, as well as I could and make peace uh, as well as I could with previous versions of myself and previous versions of my faith, while also allowing a new version of me and a new version of faith to gestate and to be birthed and to give myself permission to do that without getting stuck in the grieving process uh, about the misgivings of, of these earlier iteration of Jonathan. Leaders are not meant to go it alone. It is not a sign of failure or weakness to not figure everything out on your own. Leaders that run the marathon of leading through all the storms and curveballs have trusted support and guides. Share this episode with someone you think may really benefit from the episode. 
and sign up for my weekly Rumble email where you'll have resources at your fingertips to help you on the path to being an unburdened leader and get more information on how to work with me. You dove into your own therapeutic experience, but especially within kind of the the faith, particularly the more conservative evangelical bubble, therapy and faith are often at odds. You, you chose not to bypass this. You said you, you didn't want to get stuck in the grief, but you had to grieve, but you didn't want to stay in the deep end of it. Can you talk a little bit about this bypassing that we often see, not just, I, I would say not just even in the faith community, but overall, um, and how we often, yeah, just that bypassing of at least you're fine. At least you have this. I mean, we're in a pandemic right now, as you referenced. And so <laughs> navigating immense amount of uncertainty and personal growth when often people would reflect back to you and bypass this really Mm -hmm. deep, powerful, seismic inner shift that was going Mm -hmm. on with you. Yeah, you know, you make a good point. On the one hand, it's it's an American problem. Mm -hmm. And I think it's connected to the, the, the value that we have placed on individualism, right? Mm. There's this sort of mythos that that is saturates American culture that says you have within yourself everything you need to survive and thrive. And that's the myth, the very significant myth at the core of American culture. And if you take that to its logical end, then unless you are extraordinarily broken, right? You you have to be institutionalized or you are um, severely bipolar or whatever else, um, then, then you have within you whatever you need. That is the myth. So if you're going through a divorce or you have to grieve something or you're trying to make peace with, uh, with your faith, you kind of go, why do you need to see a therapist for that? I mean, you know, in fact, I had, remember the first time that I was going to see a therapist, I had someone in my family say, who's not an idiot, say, you know, you have the Bible. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit. Why do you have to spend all this money doing this intensive? And um, that's a common, that you, you, have to, you have to get to the why behind the what. What, they said, has a why behind it, which is this Absolutely. myth that you have within you and at your disposal, at your fingertips, everything you need to be okay. And uh, I think we're seeing the disintegration of that myth in real time. But it's, it's also over top of that, it's not just an American problem, it's an American Christian problem, because not only has um, a certain type of Christianity, I'd say evangelical Christianity, um, absorbed individualism into its own theology and practice, but it has also integrated these mechanisms for, as you call bypassing you know i'm reading a book right now called spiritual bypassing yeah which is which sort of is it it becomes faith becomes so prescriptive right it becomes um problem and solution based right um so you go will you um somebody hurt you what's the answer forgiveness well wait 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 a minute what about all those things in between what about processing your rage what about processing your sadness what about grieving what's been done to you, right? And so we bypass it because we place such a high value on forgiveness. 
and we want to rush and say, look at me, I've forgiven this person. I've I, Look at me, look how good I am, right? And so this prescriptive individualistic faith says, here's all you need to do. You as an individual, you and God can just sort of work this out. You just snap your fingers, you forgive, you move on. And then one day, of course, you wake up 30 years from now with all kinds of issues, maybe physical symptomology, uh, yep. maybe maybe a, a, another destroyed relationship where um, that repressed rage that was never processed is exploding into your consciousness. And so uh, I, I, I had to realize that um, it was important for me to identify those areas where I was tempted to bypass therapies, you know, tried and true ways of, of processing the depths of human experience. And I had to make a commitment to um, filling my inner circle with people who would encourage those processes rather than, than write, um, you know, easy prescriptions for how to, to bypass the real work. And it is hard work. It's, I'm still doing the work <laughs> all these years later. It's a lifelong process, which is a buzzkill to many, especially many, as you so beautifully said, have this prescriptive mindset. I see that in the faith community, but I see that in the leadership business community, pulling it back even more, you know, mm -hmm. you have a problem, let's fix it. And there's not a patience for mm -hmm. the true human experience of change, of healing, mm -hmm. of growth, mm -hmm. of, of iteration and pivoting. And I, I can't help but wonder, well, I more than wonder, I really believe there's just a fear of feeling, a mm -hmm. fear of losing that false that myth like you addressed of control and, mm -hmm. and, and, and again, feelings are bad feelings mean I'm out of control. So we bypass and wall up until that, that energy can't be <laughs> suppressed anymore. We, we needed a global pandemic to upend <laughs> a lot of, a lot of things right now. So I, I really appreciate that. Well, you know, you've also talked about, we've talked about this in geographical terms. That mm -hmm. is an American thing. Um, but I think we can also talk about this in chronological terms. Hmm. Um, we're not just Americans. We're not just American Christians. We are post-enlightenment American mm -hmm. Christians, which means exactly. we are highly rational. We, we, we have said, okay, logic is more trustworthy than feeling. That the head <laughs> is more trustworthy than the gut. And um, I think that we have to return to a place where we are where we are willing to be in touch with the wisdom that comes to us through feeling and experience, which can tell us things that the mind can never rationalize. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's really powerful. So I want to dig a little bit deeper into two areas. First, can you tell me more? You talked about how some of these words were used and in, in many ways weaponized. You even wrote about this in your last book. and weaponizing faith and in, in many ways colluding with perpetrators while devaluing survivors mm -hmm. um this kind of again prescriptive and and and, a, and particularly in the faith community but i see this in the business and leadership community too we want to protect people in power so i'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about this weaponizing of faith and how that's colluded with those in power that have done harm and really left this legacy, um, left these burdens um, of many people who've been hurt by mm -hmm. folks who have had these words 
used in a way and in a faith used represented in a way that's caused so much pain? Well, you know, when we're talking about the American church, we're often talking about business. And there was a transformation that went on at the last portion of the 20th century. And it was called a lot of different things. One of them is the church growth movement. But it was basically a fusion of business and leadership principles that were popular at the time with sort of um, church methodology. And so people were really wanting to know, like they were reading Stephen Covey and um, you know John Maxwell and totally Dale Carnegie and uh, you know Jim Collins, and they were applying all of these business principles to the church world. And so one of these uh, principles that plays out in both of these sectors is organizational hierarchy. Right. The idea is, you know, you, you, you go into a church and uh, or even a business in the 1990s and you can get an org chart. Right. So and so is at the top. And there's kind of this this like a web of lines that, that go down the page and everybody beneath them. You wouldn't say it this way, but it's clear it means this is like less important. Like we can replace an administrative assistant, but it's a big deal if we lose the CEO. Uh, it, it sort of becomes that the CEO is the company. Steve yep. Jobs was Apple. And so you protect Steve Jobs because to protect Steve Jobs is to protect Apple, right? If you topple the top, the rest of it will fall apart. That's the idea, right? Now now we have some people who are talking, particularly in the business world, about flattening these hierarchies. But even the way when that works, it's, it's hard to make that actually work. You still have to go who's in charge. And when you run the, the church that way, the, the sort of logical end of that is, is that the pastors, the leaders, the power brokers, the people who are pulling the levers that are keeping the institution running must be protected. Yeah, I mean, as a systems trained therapist, we love homeostasis. Our brains love the known, even if the known is doing harm and is keeping us small and stifling. And so it is a, it's one thing to talk about it, but it's another thing to actually move forward and, and disrupt these systems. And man, we're seeing a pushback mm-hmm. of that. The fight is big <laughs> for that. Um, you have also been really open and you've talked a little bit about your, your therapeutic journey of really figuring out your story and the meanings of it. And you referenced even some deep anger, some sadness and grief. But what I've I've been really moved by how eloquently and boldly you've talked about your struggles with depression and chronic pain and even toxic relationships. And I, I, I appreciate that coming from you, particularly. We don't see a lot of men talking about these things. Can you tell me a little bit more about your decision to be so open about mm-hmm. these struggles? And in addition to therapy, what are some other things that you are doing? to take care of yourself as you're healing? Yeah. You know, I wish I could say, I wish I could be noble and say <laughs> that that this evolution was a result of service. That I just sort of thought, you know, we need more men talking this way and I really want to help people, but it, it was that's not the case. It was out of survival. Mm. Um, I had held so 
much in for so long that my body began to fall apart. Yeah. And um, wow. I saw doctors all over America. No one could help me. Um, and I began to read some folks who were, say, were talking about the mind-body connection and the ways that psychological traumas and stress could manifest physically. And I became very serious about seeking out ways to confront that head on because I was out of options. Hmm. Uh, I, I, I was laid up. I could work three hours, maybe a day. I was having panic attacks all night. I was on bottle after bottle of medication, pain meds, nerve medication, antidepressant, Xanax if I needed it on top of it. Um, muscle relaxers, um, even anti-seizure medicines because my, my muscles would twitch. I would just twitch all over probably 100, 200 times a day. Uh, my face broke out in hives. My hair started falling out. I had shingles, broke out in shingles once uh, across oh, my wow. body. I had stress-induced gum bleeding. And every time I'd go see a doctor about something new, they'd say, are you, are you okay? Are you stressed out? I'm thinking, do you think I'm stressed out? Look at me. I'm falling apart. I'm 30-some years old. I was in perfect health, and my body is falling apart. And um, I was just, I just finally realized that if I didn't allow what was inside to come outside, that mm. it might actually kill me. And, uh, you know, I'm an, I, I, I want to write about this more in the book that I'm working on now because. I think that there are so many people out there. Now I'm going to get, you know, kooky a little bit. But I think there are people out there who, who are struggling with chronic headaches, with yes. fibromyalgia, with yes. chronic back pain, with insomnia, um, who are numbing out. They're self-medicating because they've chosen to avoid the work. And the work is not done by driving down to your GP and asking for a script to make it go away. Um, the work is dealing with the origin of that problem. And every doctor I saw wanted to make it go away. They'd give me shots, uh, trigger point injections for muscle pains and muscle spasms. But I would say, but what's causing this? And, and they weren't looking for a cause. They were looking. I don't think most people want to get rid of their pain. They just want to alleviate their pain. And yeah. I wanted to get rid of it. So I wanted to go to the source of it. And uh, I think that, that one of the things that I had to do was to start letting it out. First, I had to come and know what was inside of me. That's the first step. And that was a, more of a personal journey alongside with practitioners and therapists who were helping me to understand because at first you know you don't just want to start vomiting out in public you can actually make a lot of people sick if you start yes. vomiting in public thank so you for saying you, that you, you first have to process it and you have to understand it and you have to do that with the guidance of somebody who's trained to help you do this but then once you do you, you are able to process it you can begin to give it away you can begin to say this is who i really am and to, to, to offer that to the world. And there's a kind of liberation that happens when you offer your true self to the world. You don't have to carry that burden anymore. And all of that weight 
that was pressing down on me psychologically and physiologically began to lift. And it's been a multi-year process. It's a process that is still going on. I, I worked through this, uh, again, with therapy, with meditation practices, uh, with community practices. I, I just came back from a place called Onsite, where I did psychodrama, yep. a week of, of psychodrama uh, intensive. And so have breakthroughs. Break pain. I was, I, I would, there was pain I didn't even know I was holding. I thought, gosh, I've done all this work. I've figured it all out. What am I going to go there and do? I had really low expectations. And I'm having breakthroughs. You're, I'm uncovering things that have been, been buried deep inside me for so long. And it's really freed me up to be my best self personally, but also my best self professionally. I love that. Thank you so much for detailing that and for naming this mind-body connection because we've bypassed that. And like you said, we've kind of put reason over feeling. And as a result, people are getting sick. And I'm seeing that in my clinical work and in my leadership work, our bodies can only hold so much. The sponge is full. And then we are, and there's the choice. Do you want to just alleviate the pain or do you want to get to the root and really heal it? And it is a long process. So I really appreciate you sharing that. I, I want to hear a little bit about what you're working on now too, but I've heard you say some, one of my favorite, many quotes. I love, love reading your words, whether you're, you're reporting or your books, but you said you traffic in conversations that people will be stirred by. What stirs you and, or what is stirring in you right now? Oh, that's such a great question. And it's, um, I think what I what I I feel stirred by is um, this is going to sound trite, but then let me work it out. Is um, I want to be courageous in my work. I want to give away myself um, in ways that are are just um, vulnerable and maybe you know. I often say like if you can if you can tell people things that are seemingly not in your best interest to tell them, they will know you're telling the truth, right? If I can say something about myself that's embarrassing or doesn't make me seem smart or doesn't make me seem like I have it all together, that doesn't make me seem like I've got every answer you need. If I tell you that, if I reveal that about you, about myself to you, if I give you my shadow side, then you can trust me. You'll know that you can trust me when I say something, that I'm giving you what I believe is the truth. And I want to do that. And so, you know, I'm in the middle of trying to work through a book. And I really want to, I think, talk about um, the spiritual path to overcoming trauma. I think that trauma, you know, we, we, we often think about trauma as what like Vietnam vets experience. Exactly. And so it feels yeah. like so um, extreme. And I think of trauma as any experience in which the pain that you endure exceeds your capacity to process it. And mm -hmm. in that sense, trauma is a human condition. It is a common condition that we, we all have. Now, it's an epidemic. Not, it's, a, it's, I agree. it's an epidemic right now. I agree. And I think it's one that, that is showing up in other areas. It's showing up in, in workplace dysfunction. It's showing up in, in relational uh, breakdown. It, it's showing up in um, all kinds of 
of uh, tensions in families and even disintegrations of families. And I think it's showing up in, in uh, a range of um, physiological symptoms. You know, I mean, people, people look at, look at um, back pain or, you know, I remember in the, in the 80s, everybody was getting ulcers, you know, and, and then one day we said, hey, by the way, this is not a medical thing. It's stress related. And then what happened? Everybody starts getting back pain, right? And so now everybody's getting back pain. It's like, what do you think people did back in the day when they spent their first 40 years of their lives, like rolling boulders and walking barefoot? And, you know, people were not all laid up in bed, that there's something's missing, something's going on here. There's something more. There's another component. And um, so I'm seeing all of these epidemics rising around us. And I think that um, healing trauma is, is one of the keys to addressing things that are seemingly unrelated. And uh, I want to I write that story, I think. Well, I would love to help you get that story out there. And I'm cheering. You can't see me, but I'm cheering. <laughs> Jonathan speaking. <laughs> um, a forever recovered, recovering cheerleader here. You, it is the thing. I will, I will be so bold to say trauma is at the heart of so much. I mean, when we have gaslight leadership on all levels in our life um, to our own stories of whether it's neglect, emotional neglect, even if we were blessed re- with resources to physical, emotional, sexual abuse, we mm-hmm. have, a, we, it is, it is an epidemic right now. And you are touching on, and I think the way that a lot of spiritual practices have addressed it have colluded with that pain. And I think we need more people telling stories, their own and others, of how they're healing and rising and addressing this. So mm-hmm. thank, thank you. Uh, thank you for naming that and for sharing for sharing that part. And, and I, to wrap up our time together, I want to hear how you're writing and reporting. You've several books dozens and dozens and dozens of articles uh, for some of our top papers. How has all of that, your art, been a result of your unburdening and integration process? Well, I think that writing is can be healing. Um, I've also found that a lot of my writing was not healing. A lot of mm. my writing was, was, find, was, was, was an opportunity for me to insert myself into conversations that were toxic. And, and right now, this is something that a lot of journalists are facing because it's, you know, well, right now in this moment, everybody wants to talk about coronavirus, but when this passes, and it will eventually, we'll be back to the six degrees of Donald Trump. And, <laughs> you know, you can write the most thoughtful article in the world, and your editor goes, yeah, yeah, yeah but what does this have to do with Donald Trump? And they want you to, sort of like flesh out something insane that was said by some person somewhere that was harmful to other people. And before you know it, you're angry, you're bitter about it. You didn't even care about it. Now it's the only thing that matters to you. And so I'm writing less than I used to write, but I'm writing more intentionally. Wow. So you're choosing, writing is healing, no question. There's immense amount of data on that. But I love the agency of, and the boundaries around which conversations you're going to be involved with. And as a reporter, yes, six degrees of Donald Trump these days. But we need your voice to be rumbling with 
this era that we're in. So hopefully you'll keep doing that too. Well, and, and I'm also, I'm also trying to be like more active on Instagram, more active. You know, I've got an e-newsletter where I send people like, here are the five top stories this week so that they don't have to get lost in the weeds. I'm trying to, to, to develop other avenues that are um, self-controlled, mm-hmm. right? Where they're not, I'm not borrowing someone else's platform to do it, which means I have to play by their rules. Mm-hmm. Um, to be able to sort of establish my, my own areas where I can write and play and do it in ways that I feel are healthy. I love it. I love it. And uh, I think curating your own voice and your own experience is essential right now too. Jonathan, this has been such a treat. Thank you again for your time. And I really hope everyone listening to this interview has been inspired to dig in and do their own work to know that it's a long rumble and that the unburdening and integration process is not only lifelong, but most importantly, that it's worth it. So I appreciate your leadership and your voice and Again, really grateful for your time and your life's work. The the world's a bit brighter because you're showing up. So thank you. Well, thank you. The pleasure has been all mine. One of the things I really loved in this conversation with Jonathan was when he called out the difference between fixing the pain and getting to the root of his pain to really heal. He was relentless in that pursuit. It is such a good example to all of us how hard it can be to find the healing that we are so desperately seeking. Jonathan wanted to do more than alleviate his pain. He wanted to go to the source of it. That required a lot of effort and a deep commitment to healing beyond just a band-aid or a mindset fix. And Jonathan reminds us so beautifully that this is not a process to be done alone. Again, there's nothing efficient about healing, (laughs) at least again, how we often understand efficiency. And I'm so grateful for how Jonathan articulated his own journey with the burdens he carried. What I so value about the IFS or the internal family systems lens in this season of SOS, face down, body shutting down, life feels like it's crumbling season, is it offers one of curiosity and compassion towards the things that take us out instead of trying to further exile them. If you take away any message from today, it is to invest the time and energy into healing and strengthening your capacity to lead before your body and brain send out an SOS. Your body, your support system, your business community, and your bottom line will thank you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources along with ways to work with me at RebeccaChang.com.